In this series, we've tried to set the record straight and dispel the prevalent misunderstandings that are, in our view, adversely influencing public policy discussions. And to cap it all, we're, we'll end with U.S. foreign policy, a topic that's always hotly debated and is of special importance in the next few weeks as the Obama administration winds down and the selection of new advisors to the president-elect are chosen. Uh, today we'll try and see if we can't head off any particularly bad decisions from being made by focusing in on what's true and what isn't true in the foreign policy space. And to do that, I've assembled the panel you see before you. Uh, Christopher Preble is the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He is both a co-editor and a contributor to the book I mentioned on your chairs, as well as several others. He is the author of The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. And he co-edited with John Mueller, A Dangerous World, Threat Perception, and the U.S. National Security. Preble has published articles in many major publications, including the New York Times, USA Today, the LA Times, Financial Times, National Review, the National Interest, and Foreign Policy, and is a frequent guest on television and radio. Uh, a Navy vet, Preble holds a PhD in history from Temple University. Uh, a. Trevor Thrall is a senior fellow at the same Defense and Foreign Policy Studies Department. Thrall is also an associate professor at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government. There he teaches courses in international security, political communication, and U.S. military intervention. He's a contributor to our foreign policy choices I've mentioned. He's also the editor of American Foreign Policy and the Politics of Fear, Threat Inflation Since 9-11, as well as the companion volume, Why Did the United States Invade Iraq? Prior to arriving at George Mason, Thrall was an associate professor at the University of Michigan-Dearborn, where he directed the Master of Public Policy and Master of Public Administration programs. He received his Ph.D. in poli-sci from MIT. Finally, uh, Benjamin H. Friedman is a research fellow in the same department. He writes about U.S. defense politics, focusing on strategy, budgeting, and war. He has co-edited two books and is published in International Security, Political Science Quarterly, Foreign Affairs, and various other journals. Ben is a graduate of Dartmouth College, a Ph.D. candidate in political science at MIT, and an adjunct lecturer at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Uh, I'll add, if you'd like to meet with any of Cato scholars about this topic or any other issues after the event, uh, please don't hesitate to let one of us know. And each will talk for about 12 to 15 minutes or so, and then we'll leave time for questions at the end. But for now, let's welcome Chris Preble. Thanks, Peter. <coughs> Thanks, Peter. Thanks, everybody, for coming out today. I know it's a busy time. Um, Peter mentioned uh, this book, which I co-edited with John Mueller a few years ago, A Dangerous World Threat Perception in U.S. National Security, uh, and uh, most of my remarks today are sort of drawn from this and updated from this. We started that project in response to a number of people uh, making the argument variously uh, that uh, the world was more dangerous than ever, the world was more dangerous than in their lifetime. Uh, we doubted that was true. Uh, in the interest of sort of doing my due diligence and a little bit of homework in advance of this meeting, I decided to do some additional research on uh, more recent statements of our dangerous world. And of course, the way we do research is we Google it. Um, so I Googled the search string, most dangerous world, in quotes, and Trump. Uh, the responses, uh, I shouldn't have been surprised by this, uh, the responses in the most recent were, uh, it is now the most dangerous world because of Trump. And, of course, that's not what I was driving at. I was driving at, okay, what did Donald J. Trump say about the most dangerous world? And, of course, in his speech to the Republican National Convention, he said, uh, America is far less safe 
and the world is far less stable than in 2009 and then when Obama made the decision to put Hillary Clinton in his cabinet. So um, <clears throat> I think that claim is at least subject to scrutiny, um, the claim that the, that the United States is less safe than it was in 2009. Um, two metrics that you can use to assess that are uh, numbers of Americans killed by acts of terrorism in the 2000, since 2009 or uh, Americans killed by acts of terrorism since 2001 at the start of George Bush's administration. Uh, fewer Americans were killed in the eight years of Obama's term than in, uh, than in Bush's term. Why? Because 9-11 was a particularly uh, horrific event, and in terms of numbers of people killed, it dwarfs all other acts of terrorism uh, before or since. So I think it's, it's easy enough to sort of get hung up on uh, those sorts of statistical uh, ideas, and I'm, I'm not going to do that today. The point I want to make is that we are living longer, healthier, better lives uh, than at any time in the history of our species. This is true. This has been documented and continues to be documented by, among other places, humanprogress.org, which is a, a publication by the Cato Institute, online publication by the Cato Institute, which assembles statistics on health and well-being and life expectancy and the like. I urge you to check it out. We also just recently published a book by Johan Norberg, who is affiliated loosely with Cato, called Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. So this is a theme, actually, that Cato has been working on for some time. So it's better for the planet, better for the people on this planet, human beings, homo sapiens. Uh, Americans are particularly fortunate. And I think it, it's easy enough to sort of lose sight of this, um, but let's, let's use two sort of typical uh, assessments of this claim. Uh, number of non-combatants killed on American soil as a result of war. Uh, now, I was thinking about this, trying to be creative about this. Uh, uh, if you leave out the 9-11 and tax of terrorism, which I think you should treat it separately, uh, it's either uh, 1815 or 1865, depending upon where you were in the American Civil War, if you had the misfortune of living uh, in Atlanta, for example. Uh, so, you know, we don't suffer from uh, non-combatant casualties. And in terms of combatant casualties, uh, since 1973, everyone who was killed in, a, in an American war is a volunteer. That's a, a different sort of category. So, so the numbers of Americans killed in war is very, very low. Uh, number of Americans killed by acts of terrorism. I consulted my co-editor and, and friend and colleague, John Mueller, uh, uh, about this question this morning. Uh, since 9-11, your chances of being killed by a terrorist are 1 in 62 million. 1 in 62 million. Six people, on average, have been killed by acts of terrorism since 9-11. Six a year. Uh, deer kill about 150 a year. That is, collisions with deer. Um, other things that are more likely to kill you than a terrorist. Your furniture falling on you. Drowning in your own bathtub. Lightning strikes. If you're allergic to peanuts, don't eat them. They are more likely to kill you than a terrorist is. So there are many other things that are more likely to kill you than terrorists are. If you include 9-11 in the calculations and you go back a bit farther, and this information comes from this recent publication by our colleague Alex Narasta, Terrorism and Immigration, uh, if you go back to that period, it's about one in four million. You have a one in four million chance of being killed by terrorism if you include 9-11 in the calculations. 
Since 1975, uh, 3,024 people, Americans, have been killed by terrorists on American soil. Of those 3,024, three were killed by refugees. Uh, one was killed by a terrorist who entered the country illegally. You can do the math on that, but it's a one over a very large denominator. Okay, your likelihood of being killed by either a refugee or uh, a terrorist in the country illegally. Of the 9-11 hijackers, 18 came here on a tourist visa and one was here on a student visa. Okay? So your chances of being killed by a terrorist, regardless of how they got here, is very, very low. That's the myth that I want to dispel over and above everything else. And, and uh, at some level, you either believe the statistics or you don't. The more reasonable response to this is, well, yes, it's true, but that doesn't mean that tomorrow or next week or next year uh, that it will be the same. It could be worse. It could be better. So let me say, clearly, there are dangers in the world. There have always been. There always will be dangers in the world. But it's false to claim that the world is more dangerous than it has ever been, especially for Americans. So that's the myth that I want to dispel. Um, and yet, we wouldn't be talking about myths that no one believes. Uh, it is widely believed that we are uh, uniquely threatened, endangered, etc. And so I want to explore that a little bit. Why is it that Americans are so fearful? Well, the first explanation is that human beings have uh, an instinct to treat uh, unknown things uh, cautiously, right? If you want to go back to our pre-human ancestors who were contending with other uh, beasts, the logic is if you see something charging at you and you can't tell if it's a saber-toothed tiger or a mastodon or a squirrel, uh, the safe bet is to run away or to prepare to defend yourself. If you say, that's ah, nothing, uh, you'll be mauled to death. Right? And so our ancestors who had the sense to fight or flee lived to procreate, and those who didn't died. Right? That's the sort of logic of it. As we formed ourselves into communities as human beings, the fight-or-flight instinct uh, exhibits somewhat differently. Most of the people that we knew in our pre-civilized uh, existence were family members or the family members of family members. Right? We knew these people. It was a small group, maybe 15, 20, 25 people. We knew all of them by their face and by their mannerisms. If you encountered someone who you did not know, maybe they had a different color skin or maybe they wear different clothing, then that invokes the new fight or, fl uh, fight or flee instinct. And we see that all the way up into the present day. So we had this built-in instinct, this tendency to treat unknowns as threats. We have an additional tendency here in the United States to, I think, inflate threats. And the, and the story behind this is, is fairly clear. During the 1930s, Americans were unwilling and un, uninterested in becoming involved in the wars in Europe and Asia. And this period after World War II was looked upon with great disdain. And so the uh, founding, the fathers, founding fathers of the post-World War II era, the Cold War era, 
fixed upon an idea that they would, uh, as uh, Senator Arthur Vandenberg said to uh, Harry Truman when he was trying to make the case for the uh, Marshall Plan and the Truman Doctrine aid to Greece and Turkey, uh, that you should scare the hell out of the American people. Uh, Dean Acheson of this same period said that they, they, the administration, the Truman administration, spoke clearer than the truth. Okay. There was a sense that in order to rouse us being safe and secure as we are, to rouse us to deal with distant threats, uh, there's a certain element of threat inflation that has to go into the equation. And I think that has been built into our foreign policy processes from that period. We're talking about from 1947. Right. Um, why does it matter? This is the other question I get a lot of times, because after all, I've already made the case that the smarter thing to do is to prepare the kill the, squ kill the squirrel before you realize it's a squirrel, right? Why wait to see if it's a saber-toothed tiger or a mastodon? Why wait for that? Better safe than sorry. And the reason why is because uh, it is wrong, and this is a key point in John uh, uh, Mueller and Mark Stewart's paper on terrorism, if you do not treat actual threats, actual risks to life, if you treat them differently, if you expend resources on things that are less likely to kill you, you are increasing the likelihood that those other things are going to kill you. It's bad public policy. You are distributing resources in an inefficient and ineffective way. So there's that. But the other point that I want to close on is that it's bad for our relationship between the government and us as citizens. Fear is the health of the state. Fear is the health of the state. Now, people on the left and the right have reason to be concerned about this. People on the left who are worried about civil liberties and privacy and things like that don't want the, you know, want the government snooping around in their private affairs. People on the right don't want the government snooping around in businesses and regulations and things like that. Uh, that's that's uh, not necessary. It's a, it's a bother. It's, it's, a, uh, it, it's something that just shouldn't be done. Uh, but let me just read, read you two quotes, and I'll close my remarks. This, this is not a new concern. It's not a new idea that fear is the health of the state. Um, James Madison uh, addressed the Constitutional Convention in Pennsylvania. The means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. Among the Romans, it was always a standing maxim whenever a revolt was apprehended uh, to warn uh, throughout all of Europe uh, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. This idea that fear of foreign threats is used to uh, tamp down and stifle domestic uh, dissent. A decade later, in a letter to his friend Thomas Jefferson, he said, it was perhaps a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger, real or pretended, from abroad. And then, since then, others have stumbled upon this. H.L. Mencken, the critic, satirist, in the early 20th century said, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with a series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. So I submit that those warnings are still relevant today. We should strive to understand the dangers as they exist and to not exaggerate them. And don't fall victim to the myth that we live in the most dangerous time in our history or in human history. Thank you.
Um, we're changing up the order a little. Uh, I'm, I'm Ben Friedman again. I'm, I'm going to talk to the uh, fable or fallacy. It's one of those uh, that uh, we've gutted the United States military over the last decade or eight years. Uh, this idea was a talking point on the 2016 campaign trail, of course. It was voiced by Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, Ben Carson, Chris Christie, and of course, Donald Trump who in his typically overwrought way called the U.S. military a disaster and a shambles. Uh, similar, uh, though somewhat less alarmist uh, take on this was expressed by uh, various congressmen, uh, service chiefs, think tankers who warn about a readiness crisis in the United States military. Um, in theory, readiness refers to preparation for a sudden war. How ready are we to fight tonight? So that, and that depends on things like training and vehicle maintenance, staffing, and so forth. And a, a typical expression of this kind uh, was uh, House Armed Service Committee Chair Mac Thornberry, quote, budget cuts coupled with deployments at a pace and number that have not really declined very much have caused a readiness crisis in all the services, unquote. Uh, but those who complain about readiness uh, regarding the military often mix in other things beyond what strictly, in a strict sense, uh, deals with readiness. Uh, first, they tend to say that we're spending uh, way too little on the military, that the defense spending's way down under sequestration budgets. Uh, and they say, and this was true of uh, Mitt Romney in 2012 and in Trump uh, this year, that uh, we have too little stuff, we have too little military units, too few. Uh, few, too few ships, aircrafts, army brigades, and the like, and that it isn't modern enough. Uh, and third, uh, you hear uh, that uh, these, as part of the readiness concerns, you hear uh, that uh, we're projecting weakness. In other words, questions of readiness become questions of how we might be perceived by our enemies and how they might respond. Uh, so these ideas about how ready we are to fight, uh, how big and modern our force is, and what our enemies are going to do in response all get kind of mixed together. And I want to speak to all those things uh, briefly. Um, a, good, a good summary of the, this idea is, is John McCain, uh, who said recently, uh, each of our military services remain underfunded, undersized, and unready to meet current and future threats. Pretty straightforward. So I want to respond to that. Um, let's talk first about funding. One way to look at this. Uh, the scary way is to point out that uh, we cut under the uh, Budget Control Act, uh, which is bipartisan, but uh, it occurred, of course, under the Obama administration. We cut a trillion dollars in planned military spending uh, over a decade, uh, compared at least to the 2012 spending plan, which people refer to as the Gates Plan nowadays. Uh, and uh, we also have cut since. 2010, uh, defense spending is down by 22 percent or so. Uh, but a better way to look at the funding issue, I think, is to point out that the Gates plan, the 2012 uh, submitted budget, uh, was never a real plan. It was a bargaining chip. That, that uh, submission, that budget came out at a time when everyone knew that uh, we spending wasn't going to be as high as it projected it to be uh, and that budget cuts were probably coming. 
Um, that plan was submitted at a time uh, at the end of a military buildup that had grown uh, overall defense spending by 48 percent on a year-to-year basis, that is 48 percent higher than it was at the start of the buildup, which actually was in the Clinton administration. Uh, and that buildup, uh, even if you don't count the war spending, was uh, increased the size of our military by about a third. Uh, and that's, of course, not uh, I'm adjusting for inflation. So that, that's in real terms a third increase in spending, not including the wars. Um, so the 2012 increase, which the Budget Control Act cut, uh, was never real, and it came at the end of a big, uh, a massive, maybe unprecedented buildup, at least not precedented since World War II. Um, since then, uh, we've had three bipartisan budget deals passed uh, where Congress has annually upped the uh, budget cap set by the Budget Control Act, uh, whittling away at the savings that were projected to come from the Budget Control Act. Meanwhile, uh, through overseas contingency operation funding, war funding, uh, which actually go uh, largely about half of it uh, goes back to the Pentagon base budget, we've also been undercutting the savings projected. Uh, so uh, as a result, the drawdown that we've experienced this decade uh, has been easily the mildest of the uh, post-World War II drawdowns. Uh, the others, uh, which commenced under Presidents Eisenhower, Nixon, and Reagan, respectively, all cut in the ballpark of 30 uh, percent out of the overall military budget. Uh, this drawdown has been primarily accomplished through the reduction in OCO funds. So even though they've been going into the base budget, they've been coming down steadily. Uh, and so the, of the cut we've experienced, about 60 percent of it is because we're spending less on the wars. And of course, we're spending less on the wars because we're fighting less. Um, we spend more in the military today than we did at any point in the Cold War except the brief peaks during the Korean War and the Reagan buildup. Reagan had a buildup and then he started the drawdown. Um, current military spending is 36 percent higher uh, in real terms than it was in 2000, and two-thirds of that growth has come in base spending. In real terms, we're about back where we were in 2000 spending, in 2007 in terms of spending, 2007 military spending, uh, which is more than halfway through a buildup. We spend double what Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea collectively spend on their militaries. We're spending more than $180 billion this year on acquisition, that is procurement and research and development funding, which is more than China spends on its military. So um, it's hard to see uh, how we have a crisis in terms of how much we're spending on our military, except compared to those who think we should be spending a lot more. Uh, turning to the size of the military, now, you frequently hear that the Navy is smaller than it's been in many years, that the Air Force is shrunken and old, the Army is historically small, and so forth. And there's certainly some truth to this. The, the size of the Army is uh, far lower than it's been in a long time, and the same for the Navy, uh, the number of ships. Uh, and uh, we have delayed various procurement objectives during this drawdown, although uh, no major cancellations, no cancellations of a major defense program have occurred since 2010. And those delays have contributed to this procurement bow wave that's coming where the Air Force and the Navy aren't going to have enough money to pay for all the stuff they say they need. Um, so th those are real issues that we're facing. Uh, but it's important to point out that weapon systems over time, as the size of the military has been shrinking, uh, weapon systems have grown more complex. And that makes them more expensive to buy. 
uh, and to operate. Uh, you get less stuff for every dollar than you did. Uh, and I, I agree with people who argue that we should limit the requirements or limit the complexity of the weapon systems of the ships and the aircraft we buy because they're becoming uh, overly expensive and thus uh, we have a less quantity than maybe we, we would like. Um, and personnel has grown more uh, expensive due to pay raises and benefits, uh, especially uh, the increase in the cost of health care, which means that the same amount of personnel spending buys you less personnel than it used to. And so when the drawdowns come, the services, particularly the Navy and the Air Force, have drawn down manpower first. Um, but, but the big but here is that what matters when we're buying military forces is capability. And I've never heard a serious argument sustained that we have less capability in the United States military than we did back when the Navy was the size that the President-elect would like it to be. Um, in the case of aircraft, we're talking about exponentially more lethality in terms of each uh, aircraft or sortie thanks to the precision revolution than, than uh, we used to have, exponentially more, massively more capability. Uh, you can make a similar argument about uh, ships. Uh, you hear a lot about how old B-52 bombers and even F-16s are now, but the reason they've gotten them to be old is because they are such proven capable aircraft that have been refreshed and refurbished to deal with new uh, threat environments. Um, so uh, the size of the U.S. military is indeed smaller than it uh, has been and maybe smaller than it ought to be, but uh, that doesn't tell you a whole lot about how capable it is of fighting uh, the enemies, uh, which, of course, is the number one, really the only job that those forces have. Um, the third issue here, the third complaint I, me I mentioned, uh, is readiness, readiness for current fights. And now the big point here, the biggest point I think to make here is that, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said uh, over the summer, our military remains superior to all likely foes, uh, including China, and that, that's uh, in the kind of war we would fight with China, and that's a point I'm happy to elaborate on in Q&A. Now, there are shortfalls in readiness uh, as measured by the uh, services, uh, particularly in areas like uh, marine aviation. Uh, but uh, the way the services measure readiness, this is a whole other talk, but the way they measure readiness is deeply flawed uh, in a few ways. Uh, the, the aspect of that that I want to emphasize here is that readiness measures that the services had, number one, are set by them, uh, arguably in a way that makes it likely that they can ask for more money to get more uh, higher readiness scores. Uh, but uh, more importantly, uh, they, they look at readiness of each unit every unit in the military across the board, not readiness for the actual wars we're fighting. So they're looking at how ready we are in everything to do everything, which is not re doesn't really have a ton to do with the actual wars we're fighting now. Uh, in the most uh, important sense of readiness, uh, we're doing pretty good. The, the units going to the wars uh, are by and large exceptionally well prepared, well trained, well equipped. Uh, for example, the Army, uh, while it's shrunk or is shrinking to 450,000 in the active force, um, by various measures is well-manned, well-equipped with top-notch weaponry, experienced and ready for the current deployments uh, it's deploying to. Th there's objective measurements of that, at least decent measurements of that. Um, the U.S. 
aircraft, uh, the Air Force's aircraft, the Navy's aircraft, the Navy's fleet, uh, the quality remains high in terms of uh, the operators, in terms of how capable and skilled they are, um, and also the equipment upkeep. We've been spending a lot of money through OCO largely to uh, refresh equipment that's been damaged in the war, and the equipment on average is in very good shape. Um, my point is not that the current force is, is perfect. I think there are problems, most importantly, in prioritization, or rather the lack of it, which means the force is somewhat uh, overstressed because it's trying to do too many things in too many places. Um, and uh, there are problems, as I mentioned, in what we buy uh, with the complexity of weapon systems. But these issues can be solved without increasing danger to the United States by greater prioritization rather than flooding money into the military across the board. Um, Military spending choices are largely about what you want to be ready for, uh, not how ready you are for everything all the time. Um, and in that sense, the concerns that the readiness hawks I cited at the beginning raise are in considerable conflict with each other. Uh, that is, spending on today's readiness for current and near-term threats often comes at the expense of readiness for longer-term dangers. Buying more force structure means often uh, spending less on maintaining the forces uh, we have to keep it ready. Um, readiness in the strict sense of being ready to fight today is largely a function of the operations and maintenance portion of the Pentagon budget, which pays for training, vehicle upkeep and, upkeep and the like. Um, but uh, people, the same people who complain a lot, uh, certainly congressmen, about the readiness of the force are have been happy for years to put a little less money into O&M, into operations and maintenance, to pay for procurement. They like procurement more. Uh, because they like uh, the vehicles being built in their districts and so forth. Um, we could be readier to fight if we took the money we're spending on operating ex excess bases in the United States, if we had a BRAC and closed some bases and put it into at least some of that money into O&M, but of course Congress uh, doesn't want to do that. Um, so there's a conflict between some of the priorities we have in the defense budget and uh, readiness. Um, this administration, the Obama administration, has tried to keep uh, O&M funding relatively high in order to keep up readiness uh, at the expense to some degree of procurement. Uh, and Congress, again, has typically tried to put more money uh, into procurement. Um, so if we made uh, tougher choices about what we want to be ready for, if we, if we said, for example, look, uh, we really want to be ready to fight China in the long term, well, then we would put more money maybe into long-term research and R&D, uh, which has tended to go, we, we're spending more in that relative uh, to procurement than we did in the Cold War, which does show a long-term emphasis, but we could tip that balance even further. Uh, so there are ways we could prioritize different threats, but that takes a strategy. And so what I fault the Obama administration for is not gutting the United States military, but failing to make harder choices, failing to prioritize based on a strategy between different threats and deploying dollars um, as a result of that. And I would like to close by saying that I am hopeful that the next administration will accomplish that, will uh, have a more exacting strategy that makes harder choices, uh, but I can't quite uh, manage that degree of hopefulness. Uh, but I, I will say that I hope that uh, Congress can lead that charge and, and take a more fulsome and leading role uh, exercising its war powers and its control over the defense budget. Thanks.
All right. Good afternoon, folks. Uh, got energy for one more myth? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. So in 1998, uh, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright famously said to an interviewer, if we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future, and we see the danger here to all of us. Um, or if you would prefer a Republican sourcing, um, there's a new documentary out called American Umpire. Uh, in it, you will hear former Secretary of State George Shultz say, uh, quote, if the United States steps back from the historic role we've played since World War II, the world will come apart at the seams. Take your pick. Uh, <coughs> but either one is a near-perfect summary of our third myth, uh, and that is the myth of hegemonic stability, or more commonly, I guess, the myth of American indispensability. Um, now, he hegemonic stability theory is a theory of international relations that argues, as the name suggests, that the international system is more stable and more peaceful when there is a single predominant uh, nation, a hegemon, in the world. Uh, hegemon creates stability and peace by exerting dominance, whether it's diplomatic, enforcing cooperation uh, between nations, encouraging other countries not to get into wars or to engage in arms races, uh, and through its security commitments around the globe, produces the kind of stability and trust necessary to enable international trade on a large scale. In other words, having a hegemon around is a good thing, maybe even an indispensable thing. Um, There's not just any theory. Hegemonic stability theory is a really important piece of political science because it provides much of the logical justica justification for U.S. grand strategy, whether you call it uh, deep engagement or liberal internationalism or liberal hegemony or primacy, doesn't really matter. <clears throat> uh, today's indispensability advocates believe that without U.S. leadership, the world will indeed come apart at the seams. Now, unfortunately, as appealing as that sounds, I think especially to American audiences, uh, it's a myth. Um, and so in just a few minutes here, I'm going to try to poke uh, a few holes in what I think are three of the most common claims spawned by this myth. All right, and the first major claim is that the United States is indispensable for protecting and continuing to sustain the rules-based, I'll use the air quotes, rules-based world order against various and sundry threats. Um, now, before I critique, let me just stipulate that I, like I think just about everyone else, agrees that the United States was more or less indispensable right after World War II. Um, sure, the world was a big pile of rubble. We were the last player standing, and we helped stand it back up and create and kick into gear the liberal international order. Bully for us. Um, what does not follow, however, it seems to me, is that having set up the system, American hegemony is required to sustain it. And in fact, I think it is not required for several reasons. First, I think we've achieved lock-in about the rules and the, the shape of the international arena. At this point, the most important rules of the road, respect for national sovereignty, free navigation of the global commons, um, <clears throat> free trade, the prohibition of the use of force, uh, things like this, are accepted and obeyed by pretty much everyone, everywhere, all the time, except an occasional rogue state, a few terrorist whack jobs, and, you know, ironically, the United States. Um, so <clears throat> I think we're pretty good there. Um, you know, China, the country that is implicitly behind the threats to the rules-based order, frankly, has just gotten fat and happy uh, using these very rules. I, I really fail to see why uh, they don't understand uh, where their bread is buttered. Second, second reason, the liberal order, I think, has reached a mature stage of institutionalization. Certainly didn't enjoy that right after World War II, but today there are thousands of international organizations uh, that allow uh, for 
international cooperation and to uh, sort of build collective action. International cooperation is never easy um, because there are too many competing interests, of course. But today, there are a lot of forums to make this happen. And further, the United States is not the, 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 the only voice trying to wrangle all you know, 200 nation states you know, like cats in a thunderstorm. Um, the United States doesn't always, almost never has uh, its own position versus everyone else's. We're almost always arguing for a shared position as part of an informal or a formal coalition. As part of those, the United States is certainly important, but not indispensable in the strict sense of the word, I don't think. And third, and, and to some I think this might be the most important, um, the world economy is wildly interconnected. Uh, globalization and international trade continue apace thanks to the individual decisions and uncoordinated decisions of individuals and firms around the world. Uh, I think the last thing the international economy needs is a leviathan, a hegemon, or God forbid, a central planner. Um, markets function perfectly well without such interference. Okay, the second claim uh, of the indispensability myth is that America's uh, military dominance has given rise to the Pax Americana. Um, that our, you know, thanks to our military might, our alliance system, our military presence in various regional hotspots and so on, has meant an end to great power war and has kept, you know, especially these hot sort of spot regions uh, stable and peaceful. And I think both pieces of that argument are problematic. Um, on the first piece, I think it's very doubtful that American hegemony has had much, if anything, to do uh, with the avoidance of World War III uh, or the absence of interstate war more generally. There are many better explanations for this, all of which might be contributing. For example, uh, the effects of bipolarity and the Cold War standoff. I mean, and most of the post-World War II era is still a bipolar era, so American hegemony was not really the only thing going on. The second, the deterrent effects of nuclear weapons, a very depressing effect on interstate war. The democratic peace, the globalization and increasing economic interdependence that makes it kind of a dumb idea to go to war. Uh, and then more broadly, uh, and perhaps more fundamentally, the evolution of social norms against fighting wars. I think most um, sort of uh, Western nations especially, but I think, you know, more, even more broadly, uh, it's kind of gross to imagine having a big war. No one wants to do this anymore. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of these have deep traditions in, in history and, and political science research, uh, and none of them uh, calls on hegemony in any way, shape, or form, American or otherwise, uh, to do their heavy lifting. So I don't think American hegemony is required to prevent World War III, and frankly, I think we just need to be careful not to start it. Is, you know, one of the, anyway. All right, the second part of the uh, problem with the claim about Pax Americana is that um, it's not clear to me that American security commitments and military presence have the stabilizing influence that people think it does. Um, the logic of the pacifier effect at the regional level is, looks really good on paper to me. Um, as long as the United States has a military presence somewhere and provides security commitments, then your South Korea's, your Japan's, your Germany's don't need to build big armies, they don't need to acquire nuclear weapons, the bad guys are deterred, everybody is happy. Uh, but even in the very cases that people use as evidence for the Pax Americana and this regional stability effect, I think you can see that it doesn't always work this way. <clears throat> so the U.S. is big into Europe and it's a major part of NATO during the Cold War. We deter and keep the uh, European continent uh, safe and stable. Fine. Well, how's that going for you now? Right? Uh, NATO expansion and continued U.S. You know, uh, presence in NATO makes Russia very nervous. I think a lot of what we see going on 
in Russian foreign policy has to do with the exact opposite of what people think the Pax Americana is supposed to be doing. Asia is another example. In the wake of the, uh, World War II, security commitments to Taiwan and Japan and other places, do they deter China? Maybe. China was kind of in a fuddle. I'm not sure it mattered. But now what are they doing? Are we really uh, containing China or are we actually just making them uh, annoyed and more aggressive and, and building their military even faster than they otherwise would have done? And then a final hotspot is, you know, I hate to use the joker, but how about the Middle East? How, how is it going to provide security commitments and American military presence there since the early 90s? It's pretty much the opposite of what the Pax Americana logic argues. All right, so in short, then, the American pacifier is neither a necessary explanation for the avoidance of great power war or World War III, nor is it a sort of a uniform influence. We, we don't just show up with the military and everyone all of a sudden breaks out and sings Kumbaya. Right? Now, I'm not, trying to say, I'm not trying to say that this doesn't mean the United States can't play an important role and can't provide security to a nation. Well, clearly, we can. Uh, but it just don't confuse being able to protect someone with uh, peace breaking out everywhere we go. All right, and then the final claim of the indispensability uh, crowd is that we are indispensable uh, in large part because our military power is effective across sort of the full spectrum of foreign policy goals, from you know, ending civil wars to regime change to promoting democracy and liberal order, counterterrorism, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the reality is that the United States has a lot less control over the rest of the world uh, than people often imagine. Uh, military power in particular is very good for defeating other militaries and breaking things and blowing things up. Uh, but once we move toward, past that to non-security related things, I think you see that its effectiveness drops in a hurry. Um, again, the past 15 years to me in the Middle East um, should have taught us that you don't do most of those things very easily, spreading democracy and other sorts of things uh, very well, nation building by military means, just not very uh, useful. And, and more broadly, I think that's, that's sort of a specific case of a broader truth, which is that in general attempts to sort of manage or micromanage other nations, whether through military or non-military means, are, are sort of doomed to failure uh, because they display what the economist Frederick Hayek called the fatal conceit. That is this fantasy that a group of planners can somehow precisely program the infinitely complex arrangements of social, political, and economic life of a nation. And, and that conceit is double when it's someone else's nation that you're trying to control, and maybe even quadrupled when its own people don't want you to do so. Uh, you know. So it's, we are a very powerful country, but we're not that powerful. Right? We, we don't have the power to remake the world in our own image. Uh, and again, you know, just to be clear, I'm not saying we can't impact the world in positive ways, and we shouldn't look for ways to do so, but our limits are much more uh, decisive uh, and serious, significant than many people think. Um, we're not indispensable. So, in conclusion, important but not indispensable. Um, but unfortunately, I think, in this town especially, too few people have understood the distinction, uh, and the consequences have been fairly severe. Uh, the myth has prompted us to adopt too ambitious a grand strategy. We spend too much on national defense. Uh, we intervene in too many places. We babysit our allies uh, unnecessarily and, for, and at great cost. And in general, we worry about and meddle in things that are well beyond our ability to control. If we could get rid of this myth, if we could move past it, we could align our grand strategy and foreign policy more closely with our actual and much more narrow security interests, and we could focus on foreign policies that actually attempt to achieve things that are achievable by the United States. Thanks.